right. That is so intense music. I was like chill, and then that music started playing. I got stressed out immediately. It's like, what happens if this message is awful? Guess it won't be any different than any other week I'm here, right? So, uh, listen, if you're a guest today, thanks for being here. My name is Ryan. If you're tuning in online for the first time, you can always switch over. There's lots of other online churches if you get bored. So, uh, totally understand and appreciate that. You've heard all the important stuff as it stands. But if you are a guest, thank you for being here today. Uh, inside the program is my cell phone number, whether you're tuning in online or here in the room. Uh, uh, feel free to shoot me a text. I'd love to have coffee meet you. If you've been around for a while, happy to meet with you as well. If we've never had coffee especially, love to hear your story, share a little bit of my crazy journey that brought us here into northern Colorado, and it is good to be here. Listen, I grew up in the Midwest and uh, lived in uh, Missouri, but then our family lived in New England for about 20 years in Massachusetts. Massachusetts and Maine, and then we moved out here to northern Colorado. But where I kind of grew up, what feels the most like home is Indianapolis, kind of where I spent uh, elementary, or not elementary, but junior high and high school. Uh, but I remember a lot about some time we spent in Ohio, grew up there in Ohio, in Cleveland. Yes, yeah, a beautiful town, as you can tell. You say Cleveland, you get a few, woo, you know. I, if I say San Francisco, everybody's like, yeah, San Francisco. We had water in Cleveland. It was amazing. Don't knock the Great Lakes, people. Do not knock the Great Lakes. Um, so, grew up there and kind of grew up in a, a, a middle-class family. My father was on staff at a church. Church is kind of in my bones, in my blood, so to speak. Uh, really, I just can't do anything else. I have no other discernible skills, which is why you're stuck with me. Um, if I had any other skills, I would do them, but this is it. You're welcome, right? So, uh, but I remember growing up in Ohio, we, would, we didn't go out to eat a whole lot. We didn't have a whole lot of extra income, especially in those days. I'm grateful that I think the church world and nonprofit world does a better job of paying people than they did maybe 40 or 50 years ago. But, uh, you know, we just didn't have a whole lot of extra money. But every now and then on Sunday nights after church, because we did Sunday night church back then, any, any Sunday night church folks? Come on. Yeah, that's good stuff, right? So sometimes we'd go out to dinner with a group of people, which was really fun uh, to have fellowship. That's what we called it back then. And uh, we still call it that today, by the way. And, uh, and we would go to this place called Friendlies. Y'all ever heard of Friendlies? Anybody heard of Friendlies? Amazing place, right? Amazing place. Loved going to Friendlies. Chicken fingers out of this world. Out of this world. So when, whenever we would get to go out and my parents would say, we're going to Friendlies, I would freak out. Super excited. Imagine eight-year-old Ryan all this craziness just exuding out at the idea of friendlies because friendlies came with a free Sunday, right? Friendlies came with a free Sunday at the end of the meal. Chicken fingers, french fries, and a Sunday. What more could you want as a white middle-class American kid, right? With one sister, one dog, and a split rail fence. We had it all, right? Now, uh, we would do that. Then we moved to Indianapolis. There's no friendlies there. So friendlies just kind of left my mind, right? So now fast forward, uh, we're, I live in Missouri for a little bit for undergraduate work, travel out to New England for graduate school, married, get to New England, and lo and behold, what do they have? Friendlies, right? So I tell Wendy, I said, have you ever been to Friendlies? Wendy's my wife. And she's like, no. I said, we got to go to Friendlies. It's amazing. Amazing. It's going to blow your mind. What are you talking about? It's phenomenal. We're going to Friendlies. Let's go to Friendlies. Now, at that point, like, we had like no money whatsoever. In graduate school, both working, barely making by, in-laws paying for the groceries. But I was like, we are going to Friendlies. I don't care if we have to 
ditch on the bill. We're going to friendlies, all right? So uh, we, we save up for about eight months because I don't know if you know friendlies, four star, right? Three diamonds, whatever it is. So we go in, sit down, open up the menu, just like I remember. It's a beautiful big menu, laminated, the whole deal, colorful. There's the free Sunday. Order the chicken fingers, get the fries. They bring it out. It's the most disgusting food I've ever had in my life. Horrible. And I imagine like, no, 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 no. Like they have changed the recipe. How many of y'all know they did not change the recipe? My memory of Friendly's was what? Very different than my reality of Friendly's. Now, Friendly's was Friendly's. It was what it was. When you're seven years old and they bring you ice cream with chocolate syrup on it or caramel and a chocolate and some of those little walnuts that are crushed up that have probably been sitting back there for eight years, you know, who knows? And it's not even real ice cream, right? It's not, it was powder at one point in time, and then it goes into some magic machine that mixes some form of dairy product with it, I don't know, and then out comes something we call ice cream, but it wasn't real ice cream. But what I realized, it was disgusting. Let's close in prayer. That's the, <laughs> that's the message. It has nothing to do with what, I, no, it has everything to do with what I'm talking about today, because here's the deal, right? We remember things different than their reality, Right? Now, I could have gone to Friendly's and I could have been very uncritical of it. I could have sat there and blindly believed that this was a delicious, fantastic meal because that's what my younger self told me. That's what my soul told me. That's what the innermost part of me told me. This is a a wonderful place. And I could have sat there and I could have actually done the opposite. I could have had like my whole childhood destroyed. Like if this is a lie, what else is a lie? Was I even loved? Did we even have a dog? Was that a dog? Like what other trickery were my parents doing to me as a child growing up? Are they even my parents? Who am I? I mean, I could have had a total existential meltdown at Friendly's right there in that moment. Because memory is powerful, but memory changes and shifts and shape. And and, and in that moment, I could respond to friendlies in a faith-filled way. No, no, it's really good. And I could just have powered through the three chicken fingers that they brought me, which would have been a mistake. And just, and then I could have gone and told everybody about how amazing friendlies was. And then they'd go to friendlies. They'd be like, I am never, ever taking another restaurant recommendation from Ryan. Or I could have gone the opposite. I could have just been like, this place is terrible. I, I can't believe it. Like, and I could tell people, never go to Friendly's. It's a scam. It's not even real chicken. Or I could find some happy place. <laughs> and I could hold this like, space that says, Friendly's is what it is. It's really not great food. It's really not. It's not great ice cream. It's not Ben and Jerry's, you know. I'm not getting any tonight dough there. But it's something really powerful in my life. It's something that was formative, that shaped me, that in that experience was love, in that experience was generosity, in that experience was sacrifice, knowing that for us to go out to dinner was a big deal, right? So I can hold that tension between these two realities. And, and that's kind of a picture of what I think a, a real healthy spirituality is like, not me, but that idea of holding these two ideas of, say, faith and reason intention. Like the faith that says, Friendly's is more than just ice cream and bad chicken fingers. Like Friendly's is a space of love for me. Friendly's was a space of wonderful memories. It was a space of laughter. And so there's something important. But I can also hold reason that's like, I don't go to Friendly's for the food. I go there for something else. And what I've realized is in my own life, oddly enough, I hold these two values 
uh, really close together. They're kind of like two sides of the same very important value coin in my life, and that is faith and reason, right? Faith and reason, that somehow these two don't have to be in opposition. And I was kind of raised in a tradition that didn't mean to, but certainly gave me the impression that they were in opposition, that it was about faith, that when your reality didn't match up with your faith, you had to dismiss reality. And somewhere along the way, I thought, well, I'm not going to tell you what I thought because it's a curse word, but I thought to myself, that's crazy. That's crazy. This doesn't make any sense. I'm supposed to reject reality for this experience that doesn't make any sense in my life. And my friendlies kind of analogy sticks with me because I could like approach friendlies like that with the reason of like, oh, it's just terrible. Or I could approach it with faith. So reason is this idea that I can actually come to life, come to circumstances, and use the power of my mind to think. And I can actually understand, I can form judgments through a process of logic. That's reason. So I can come to friendlies and be like, okay, let's, let's think about this. But I can also come to friendlies from a place of faith, right? Faith that tells me like, there's something bigger and spiritual about that experience. As odd as it sounds, friendlies was like a church to me. Right? If church is a space where we experience something beyond what we can see, hopefully beyond what we can taste. Some of you will get that joke on the way home because friendly is a restaurant. You eat food there, you taste it, you know. I thought that was a better joke than it was. Sorry. All right. Scratch that one off the list. So faith, like for me, is just this strong belief in God. Strong belief that there's something more to this reality than what I can see or what is identifiable through microscopes and telescopes. Pope John Paul II said this, he said, faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. I did quote the Pope, by the way. I know we're Protestants. We're not allowed to do that, but I did it. Got to give a shout out where it's due. What a beautiful statement, right? This idea that faith and reason are two wings on which our human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth, that to experience truth, to understand truth, to think through truth, we have to bring these together. Now, here's the tension, right? That we can actually be blinded by faith, but we can also be blinded by reason. Like, we can miss out on a whole lot because we can be so certain, and we can miss out on a whole lot because we can think uncritically about things. And this happens within Christianities. I use that word plural all over the, all over the world. So let me share with you, I don't believe that there is a Christianity. My experience tells me that there are multiple Christianities out there. There are multiple movements in Jesus' name. There are multiple expressions of a life of faith. And some Christianities, right, they would say certain things about Jesus, while others would say other things. And when a Christianity overemphasizes faith at the expense of reason, I found that people will do unreasonable things in the name of Jesus. Right? I mean, we will go all out in faith. I mean, I, I've seen people give up their life savings in faith because you just got to sow the seed of faith. And life. I've sat with families as a pastor who, when I started at the church I was at in Maine, I got invited by a group of about 20 people that had started coming to this church just before Wendy and I got there. And we sat down and they just began to pour out their heart and the story of what had happened to them at a church they had all come from where they just basically had been robbed. They just had been robbed. I mean, people, they talked about bringing their jewelry in, bringing in wedding rings, bringing in life savings, and come to find out that the pastor of this church, everything was put into their family's name, the building. There was no real board of directors. 
And so they come, why? Because they had done unreasonable things in a community that was grounded in faith and reason was unacceptable. No asking questions, no thinking through. Jesus said, go sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and then come follow after me. So let's do this together. So there's an uncritical spirit there. But here's the thing. When a Christianity overemphasizes reason at the expense of faith, what I found is people will actually act unfaithfully to the message of Jesus, right? If we just kind of remove it completely and we say, well, there is no, there is, I can understand it all. I can have certainty. Now we forsake the message of Jesus and the radical nature of discipleship for what? Cognitive understanding. I memorize all the dogmas, I sign the paper, I go through this class and that class, and then I get baptized, and then I'm in because I have all the right beliefs. Meanwhile, my life doesn't change at all. The world isn't a better place for me being in it. The world might not actually be a worse place, but it's not any better. But I've come to this space. Like I, I've, I've eliminated all the, the things that, that we can't understand. They're just not part of it, and we grab a hold of reason. Both are dangerous. What I've seen, however, in my heritage, and which I think is a part of a lot of our heritage that are sitting in this space, is a Christianity that unwelcomes, like, reason. Like, my background was this faith side of things. And what I've discovered and what I see happening and what I just saw happen in the space that I was doing work at in New England with just this one church that just absolutely imploded, megachurch imploded this last week. I mean, in a matter of three weeks, because it was a space that was just about God and, and, and faith and we're going to go take the hill and personality driven and all this crazy stuff. And what happens in that space where reason is not welcomed, a critical attitude, a critical spirit is not welcomed. And I don't mean critical in a negative way. I mean it in a neutral way, right? To think critically. When that is not welcomed into our expression of faith and in our, our spiritual lives, what I think happens is that that Christianity just becomes a tool. It becomes a tool for somebody or some people to gain power, to maintain control, and impose fear on people. Now, I don't think they sit down in their evil lair and go, hmm, let's see, how can we do this? I think that oftentimes these, these, these we'll say weeds, <laughs> grow up in the garden out of very good intention because there's a tradition that's handed on to people that's built on faith and built on fear built on a lack of critical thinking, a lack of reasonability. And so they just, we just kind of inherit what we do. So I'm not scapegoating saying all the problems in Christianity are in this one segment, but I think this is a part of a lot of our story. As I get to have coffee with those of you that are, are brave enough to see, is that really his phone number? And then I text back and you're like, whoa, it's voodoo. Like, it's witchcraft. Hear these stories of just pain that flows from this just endless cycle and so at the heart of this series is something kind of scary. It's this desire to experience and this desire for a healthy expression of Christianity that's informed by both history and theology, that's informed by both faith and reason, and that's informed by what we'll call the historical Jesus and the living Christ. See, the truth is when we gather in spaces like this as followers of Jesus, we're experiencing what we could call the living Christ, this universal reality of God that is coursing through the world. And we're experiencing it through the lens of Jesus. It's part of our tradition. It's part of our heritage. 
And so this series is really about how do we dig into the life of the historical Jesus, the man that walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, the man that is probably the most influential person in Western history, potentially global history, of which who never wrote a word, Jesus didn't write one word, didn't author one thing. We have nothing that Jesus wrote. The stuff that we have about Jesus, the actual physical texts that we have that we study all are hundreds and hundreds of years after the life of Jesus. I mean, they're written, some maybe were written as close to 20 years in the life of Jesus. They come to us from a culture that we know very little about in our Western American world and our values. But that real, that, that like original Jesus who walked, the one that historians look at and say, okay, we know that there was this guy who grew up in Nazareth, <laughs> we know that at one, at one point in time, he was a disciple of a guy named John the Baptist. Historically, we know that at some point, he stopped being a disciple of John the Baptist and kind of took a completely different path than John's message. We know that he had followers. We know that he invited people to be his disciples. We know that he spoke historically about 12 disciples. That was important because there were 12 nations in Israel. We know that he was crucified on a Roman cross, considered an insurrectionist, an enemy of the state. Like historically, that's kind of what we know. And the question becomes like, what is that Jesus like? What did he think about himself? And see, you're, some of you are like, well, don't we have the four gospels? Like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Like they tell us everything. And that was kind of the predominant thought for many, many years. The church kind of held the power. They said, this is who Jesus was. This is what he was all about. And inside of that emerged a vision and image of Jesus, right? And that kind of dominant primary image of the person of Jesus, which was accepted in many spaces, and, and many of us kind of grew up with it, was Jesus was this person who was divine or semi-divine, however you want to parse that one out, but knew exactly who he was, that Jesus knew exactly who he was. He knew that he was sent from God that he was the son of God, that he proclaimed that there was salvation through him, that he went about and he proclaimed this about himself and he called people to repentance and he knew that his mission was to die for the sins of the world so that the possibility of eternity could open up. Like that's the dominant picture of Jesus. But here's the thing. Like as soon as scholars were able to start asking really critical questions of the text about 200, 250, 300 years ago, people started going, wait a second hang on. That image is based on the gospel of John, where Jesus is going around saying things like, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. All these I am statements. And then they started to look at like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, comparing them instead of just reading it vertically, like let's read Matthew and then Mark and then Luke, which you kind of, your brain kind of puts it all together. They started reading them side by side. And they started going, wait a second, this is kind of crazy. The Jesus and John never talked in parables, but the Jesus and Matthew, Mark, and Luke were told only taught in parables. What the heck's up with that? And they start, wait a second, like the Jesus of John like was confident, like knew everything that was going on. Even in Jesus' arrest, people are bowing down to him. Like Jesus is being arrested and everybody's bowing down to him. But that's not what's happening in the other gospels. And they started to look carefully and critically and started really studying these texts and they realized, wow, we actually have a totally different picture of Jesus. Totally different picture of Jesus. And so scholarship, devoid of church control, like no longer fearing <laughs> being burned at the stake, 
started to emerge and started to engage in really beautiful work, saying, what was the real Jesus like? Would the real Jesus please stand up? Did Jesus walk around saying things like, I'm the bread of life, take up your cross and follow me? I mean, let's just take that one statement, for example. Take up your cross and follow me. If you're living in the first century, the only time you ever see a cross is when you're walking by people hanging on it naked at eye level. For the, so the Roman Empire is telling you, hey, this is what happens when you think you're better than the Roman Empire, when you think you can take us on. Like when Jesus says that, do you think that would have made any sense to anybody in that moment? They'd have been like, take up your cross. What is he talking about? No, it makes perfect sense post-resurrection, experience of the living Christ, when you're trying to redeem and make sense of what happened to Jesus. So this popular image of Jesus kind of begins to erode a couple hundred years ago. And great work starts to get done. And now we get these different pictures of Jesus that come. And, and what's been kind of, what's come out of scholarship is that the Gospels themselves are giving us an image of Jesus that's really read through the lens of the resurrection. That the stories, the traditions, uh, the sayings of Jesus, they all have been colored by the lived experience of the communities that they were coming out of. So John is writing for a community. Matthew's writing for a community. Mark is writing for a community. And they're shaping the inherited stories they have about Jesus. And by the way, like critical scholarship has abandoned long time ago this idea that these are eyewitness accounts. That's not to say that they're not powerful or filled with truth or they don't go back to eyewitness accounts. It's just to say most scholars just look and say, well, that's, that's probably not what's happening. What we have here are like a tradition that Mark starts with. He's probably the earliest writer. Matthew and Luke have most of Mark in their gospels. I mean, the exact Greek, we can see it right there. John takes and adapts some of Mark, maybe. There's another tradition about the cross and the resurrection that probably emerged. So they're using sources, putting it all together, and they're shaping and telling the story of Jesus to their audience in a way that makes sense and was meaningful to them. That's why we call it the gospel according to Mark. Like we have one gospel, but we have four according to's in the canon. We actually have a whole lot more according to's that are out there. Now, the important for us in, in exploring this and trying to dig into this person of Jesus is because if Jesus, and we know historically, called people to follow him, and as we experience God in this world, the living Christ, we'll call it, the resurrected reality of Jesus, if Jesus' ultimate invitation was to follow him, which that seems to be historically something that goes back, Jesus invited people to follow him, you have to say, well, what was he inviting them to? Was he inviting them to understand exactly Savior of the world, sin, sacrifice? Was he inviting them into something else? What does that look like, and where do we look at it? So, so what we want to do throughout this series is take some of the best scholarship that we have currently on the historical Jesus, get a good picture of what were some key identifiable markers about that Jesus, and say, how can that inform us? And so to kind of do this, let's just run a little experiment, okay? How many of you are having fun today? Come on, this is so boring. I know. Like, I totally get it. Some of you are like, why did I come today? Okay, because it's just, a, it's going to get even better right now. Because we're trying to give like 220 years of scholarship on the historical Jesus in about 35 minutes, right? No problem. <laughs> now, let's run a little experiment on the historical Jesus, explaining Jesus and experiencing Christ, the living Christ, okay? Faith and reason. And let's do this by asking the question, who is Jesus? Okay, now, 
in historical Jesus studies, they have compartmentalized and kind of created an index. There are 522, everybody say 522. 522 what we'll call complexes that involve Jesus that they found in the literature. So there's 522 like sayings that Jesus is said to have said or experiences that people had with Jesus or statements about Jesus. There's 522 of those in the history of scholarship in the world that we know of. They're from languages like Coptic, from Greek, Aramaic, right? Now, of those 522 complexes, they pull those from 52 written sources that we found in the dirt, right? 52 sources. How many of y'all know there are not 52 Gospels in the Bible, right? I mean, we may not still memorize the books of the Bible. We might not even know them because we have Google to help us with that now. But let me just rest assured there are not 52 Gospels in the New Testament. But Gospels aren't the only places where we find things that Jesus said. Some of the letters that Paul wrote, he makes mention, he talks about Jesus, things that Jesus said, right? And we have extra canonical sources, things that are actually come from earlier than our canonical gospels about the life of Jesus. And there's 52 of those. And all of these works, scholars say, basically span from the year 30, right around when Jesus died, to the year 150, so middle of the second century. So these 52 documents that's where they come from, that time period. Now, most of them, by the way, the extent copies that are still in existence, they're from much later on. Like the copies that we have, of the earliest copies that we have of Matthew are from late second century, right? They don't, they don't even come close to the originals. We have no originals of any of these things, right? Some of them are reconstructed documents, but they come from this time period, right? So shortly after, and they kind of break this up into four categories, like imagine like stratus, like of like sediment, you know? So there's level one, two, three, and four. One is the closest to the life of Jesus. Now, one of these complexes is called, who is Jesus? Isn't that funny? <laughs> right? So it's the who is Jesus complex. And that's the story, if you're familiar, where Jesus says to his disciples, hey, what do the people say about me? What's going on out there? What are the people saying? What's on Twitter? How am I trending? Right? That's what Jesus was asking. <laughs> What's trending about me out there? Okay? So we call this complex in historical Jesus scholarship, who is Jesus? And here's what we know. It's of the earliest strata, right? So it comes like this, this, these sayings that Jesus are said to have said, this story comes from very early, very, very early. And we have two, two like completely separate instances of them. Does that make sense? So they're not related. It's not like it's a source. One's a source for the other. Now, the, the one unique space where this who is Jesus, what are people saying about me, comes from a, a place called the Gospel of Thomas, which is a gospel that we found in 1945, uh, and it's written in Syriac. Uh, no, excuse me. It's, not, it's written in Coptic. I apologize. And then we have this other time is, is experienced in the, the three canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and there's a couple other late gospels that it's been adapted into, but they're all part of it. So six different places. Now, they're different. Whenever we see, whenever we hear this, they're, they're different. They've been shaped, right? So Mark chapter 8, verse 27 is probably the earliest gospel in the New Testament. Don't you just feel like you're in school right now? Isn't this beautiful? It's going to change your life, all right? We're going to read through these real quickly, okay? Because it's important that we recognize we're not dismissing anything, but we're digging in because our faith should be grounded in this stuff, okay? So here's what Mark says. Here's how Mark uses this 
complex about Jesus who's like, what's trending about me? So here's what he says. Now, Jesus and his disciples, they set out for the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So that's important. Remember, Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is north of the Sea of Galilee, about 30 miles, okay? There was a space, pagan worship there. There was a place called the Gates of Hades in Caesarea Philippi, okay? Important to remember that. Now, here's Mark. He says, they're going up there, and along the way, like they're walking, eating some figs, whatever. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, who do people say that I am? That's the question. That's Mark, right? Who do people say that I am? They said in reply, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. <laughs> now, it's kind of funny when you think about it. Who do you think that I am? Right? Well, you're John the Baptist. I'm not John the Baptist. I'm wearing camel's clothes and eating locusts. Give me a break. Right? But they say, oh, you're this person or that person. It's a very strange conversation. Can we admit that? It's a strange answer, okay? <laughs> Now, he asked them, okay, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you're the Messiah. And then you get this weird statement from Jesus. He warns them, don't tell anybody. Do not put that on Facebook, right? In the gospel of Mark, it's called the messianic secret. Messianic secret. Jesus is always telling people, don't talk about me, right? Don't let everybody know. Jesus himself never says it, by the way, but he's telling people, don't say it. Okay, now, so you get Jesus. He says, the question is what? Who do people say that I am? You get, oh, you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, you're the prophet. Now, Matthew, who we say has the gospel of Mark, a version of it, uses the story, and he says this. When Jesus went to the region of Caesarea Philippi, bam, boom, right there, exact same Greek phrase, uh, he asked his disciples, no, this is different, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Oh, that's fascinating. So Jesus doesn't ask, who do people say that I am? He says, who's the Son of Man? Now, the Son of Man is an apocalyptic figure from the book of Daniel. Scary stuff. And it actually is really beautiful because there's these empires that rise up and they're like beasts in the book of Daniel. But then there's this empire to come that is supposed to be human, <laughs> compassionate and gracious and loving. So it's an empire like the Son of Man. There's, a ruling, there's one ruling like the Son of Man. So it became this apocalyptic phrase. So Jesus isn't really asking about himself. He's saying, well, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, now the response makes sense. Well, some say it's John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Oh, fascinating. And so Jesus then says to him, exact same Greek, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies in the Gospel of Matthew, you're the Messiah, and he adds son of the living God. Now here's where it gets crazy. Matthew goes nuts. Matthew just starts making stuff up. This isn't in Mark. Where's he getting this nonsense from? Now he goes off on Peter. He's like, Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades or the netherworld, which happens to be just down the street, maybe an eye shot from the story, will not prevail against it. This truth. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I mean, he just keeps Jesus is like into Peter. It's like, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly ordered the disciples, don't tell anybody who the Messiah is. A little different, right? Community of Matthew, by the way, really into Peter, not so much Paul, right? There's a little bit of dissent and discord as the church developed in the first century. Who was actually in charge? 
Like, who was the guy? Who was the Pope? So you had a faction that was like totally into Paul, and you had one that was into Peter. The Matthean community, by the way, thumbs up on Peter for sure, because they were a Jewish community, all right? Now, very different. Now, let's go to Luke. Are you having fun yet? Come on now. Buckle the seatbelts. Here we go. All right. Luke chapter 9, same thing. Now, Caesarea Philippi, not even in the question. It just says, once when Jesus was praying in solitude, right? Now, again, Luke is using Mark. We agree on that most day. Just every scholar says, yeah, he's using this. Once when Jesus was praying in solitude, he asked the disciples who were with him, which how can you be in solitude and have the disciples with you? First of all, I have a problem with that, Luke. It doesn't make any sense, but okay. He says, who do the crowds say that I am? Right, so it's a little different. Who do the crowds say that I am? And then they reply, John the Baptist, Elijah, and others, one of the ancient prophets that has arisen. Now, here's what's interesting. In Luke, a little bit earlier on, we find out that Herod has like gone after John the Baptist, and he knew that John the Baptist was dead. He had had him killed, and then the word about Jesus gets to him, and Herod is like, they're asking him, who do you think this Jesus is? It's like, well, maybe it's John the Baptist resurrected. That's what Herod says in the story. Or Herod says, well, maybe it's John the Baptist, or maybe it's one of the prophets, or maybe it's Elijah. Like, this is Herod, the like, Roman puppet king, right? And then you have the disciples say, well, this is what people are saying about you. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Now, Peter says, same, Peter says, you're the Messiah of God. Notice Luke doesn't worry about son of God, son of living God. That's not Luke language, that's Matthew. He says, you're the Messiah of God. And then Jesus rebuked him for getting the question right. <laughs> getting the question right. How dare you? No, he says, he rebukes him and he says, don't tell anybody. Now, interestingly enough, the don't tell anybody stuff is really, Mark is what it's all about. Like, you don't really see that in Matthew and Luke, but because Matthew and Luke are using Mark, they're like, we should probably keep that in there. Now, here's when it gets really fun. Let's take a little journey outside the Bible. Are you with me? Put your thumb up. We're going to hitchhike back a few years to the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas is a collection of sayings by Jesus. It's a totally different type of gospel. There's no narrative. There's no rhyme or reason to it. This was called a Gnostic gospel. It came out of a Gnostic tradition that was being developed really early within Judaism in the first century. Gospel of Thomas. Gospel of Thomas 13, probably the oldest version of this little saying, where, people, where Jesus is like, what do people say about me? So here's what the Gospel of Thomas says. Now, don't freak out. I'm not saying that the Gospel of Thomas should be in the Bible, okay? But this is beautiful literature that this is the way certain people follow Jesus as one of the earliest communities out there. And this is what it says. You're going to love this. How many of you have ever read the Gospel of Thomas? Raise your hand up nice and high. Any geeks in the room with me? Thank you. I see that hand. I see that hand. That's good. <laughs> That's a flashback to the old days when you'd have people raise their hand to pray the prayer and get out of hell. So, okay. <laughs> now we're going to go right to the Gospel of Thomas, and I'm going to lose my job tomorrow. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Gospel of Thomas, the 13th saying, right? This is what it says. Jesus says to his disciples, compare me to someone and tell me who I am like. That's like Jesus having a bad day, right? Just tell me what I'm like, everybody. Come on. I'm having a bad day. I tried to turn water into wine. It didn't work out. It was really bad wine. Help me out here, right? No, he says, who do, you tell me who I'm like. And so Simon Peter doesn't get it right, by the way. Well, he does. But he says, you're like a righteous angel. Oh, fascinating, Peter. Then Matthew says to him, you're like a wise philosopher. Oh, I can see that. Okay, good, good, good. Thomas, namesake for the gospel. Thomas says to him, master, 
Thomas was a kiss-up, all right? <laughs> he says, Master, my mouth is wholly incapable of saying whom you are like. And then Jesus says, I'm not your master. Because you have drunk, you have become intoxicated from the bubbling spring which I have measured out. <laughs> the disciples, like they're, you could just picture the disciples like this guy again. Oh my gosh. I don't know. I can't describe him. <laughs> it's a simple question, Thomas, which just means twin, by the way. That's not even his real name. It's like twin. That's what it is. English is like twin. It's like, come on. Oh my gosh. And then it says that Jesus took Thomas and withdrew and told him three things. He was like, come on. You're my favorite, Thomas. I want to just. I'm going to reveal to you the hidden truths. That's what Gnostic reality was about. So when Thomas comes back to his companions, the disciples, they're all like, what did he say? What did he say? What did he say? What did he say? And Thomas, making friends, says, if I tell you one of the things that he told me, you'd pick up stones and throw them at me. Like, that's not a good feeling, right? What could he have possibly said to you? He says, a fire will come out of those stones and then burn you up. And it ends. That's how the story ends right there. Boom. <laughs> Done. So let me ask this question. What did Jesus really say? You're like, who cares? Can we please go to lunch already? I got to speed this up. Here's the thing. Now we talk about explaining Jesus and experiencing Christ. So the historical question, the historical question is how probable is it that Jesus, the historical Jesus, the original Jesus, had a conversation with his disciples about his identity? How probable is it? If it's highly probable, then we would say Jesus actually had some sort of conversation like this. This is a question of historical factuality, not truth. I love the line in the original Indiana Jones, which, by the way, so psyched that another one's coming out this year. The first Indiana Jones, it opens up, it's beautiful, like somebody comes in and he's talking about his archaeology class, and he says what? He says, here we deal with facts. If you're interested in truth, philosophy's down the hallway, right? Historical facts are different than truth. Let's just hold on to that, right? And so historians look at this, and they have all kinds of criteria, and basically, spoiler alert, Every scholar looks at this that's participated and says, probably not original Jesus material. Now, does that mean it's not truthful? No. Does that mean it's not filled with wisdom? No. It just goes, well, probably doesn't date back to the historical Jesus. Why is that? Well, they say the historical Jesus, based on the evidence, have really never talked about himself in the first person. That wasn't Jesus to go around saying, well, I am. I'm just wondering. And Jesus, the historical Jesus didn't really initiate those kinds of dialogues. He was always more, the historical Jesus was more in response, right? And, and when you look at this, if you're going to remember the life of somebody in that time period, you typically would write down sayings that they thought were profound, that pointed you back to the person of Jesus. This story is really about the disciples and their response. It's memorable, and so, so, so scholars look and say, hey, here's the scoop. Like, this is the memory of the church in this story talking about, oh, an affirmation of who Jesus was for them, right? Because in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus never says that he's the Messiah, never once. In fact, in the three, what do we call the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's just not Jesus' language. He doesn't go around saying, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm a big deal. Come on. Johnny's like, I am the bread of life. But the historical original Jesus, he didn't really do that. That wasn't his jam. Now, what happens is you say, okay, well, that's fine. Because it became super important to the early followers of Jesus in Jewish communities that they embraced Jesus as the Messiah because they had walked away from their mainstream faith. 
And so these communities developed and they took their tradition and they said, no, what we're saying is this is the Messiah. Even though Jesus never said it of himself, fascinatingly enough, they kind of knew it. They said, this is it. And Peter got it. And that's why Peter's in charge. Or if you're the gospel of Thomas, Thomas got it. That's why we're Gnostics. But the historical Jesus probably didn't do it. He probably wasn't worried about that concept. So that's the question of historicity. It's not a question of truth. It's not a question of whether Jesus was the Messiah, because the truth is Jesus was the Messiah for these communities. Hands down, they had given up everything to follow him. They had had a real experience with a risen Jesus, and Jesus was their Messiah, and they said, no longer are we following Moses, but we're following Jesus. That's who Jesus is, and if you're a part of this community and you're reading our documents, that's what we're saying. So remember, the question of historicity isn't a question of truth. It's a question of what really do we have? What are these texts? Now, the experiencing Christ question is this. Who do you say that Jesus is? Right now, in the, per, in the personhood of who you are, in your experiences, in the things that you're going through, the fears that you have, the persecutions that you're facing, the things that you've walked away from, the ideas of God that you have been handed your own hopes for the future. These were all things that these communities were dealing with. Now, the question of an experience with Christ, the universal Christ, the living spirit of God, is, well, who is Jesus to you in all of that? In all of that, in the midst of your fears, who is Jesus? Because that is a matter of experience with the living spirit of Jesus. That is a matter of faith. Now, I can hold those two together perfectly wonderful. Boy, we are going to be here a long time today, aren't we? Wow. You all should have told me it was 11.15. Okay, here we go. We're into this. Are you with me? Now, it's a question of wisdom and faith, not rules and certainty, not what actually happened or didn't happen. It's about truth and how that truth holds us together. So for these communities, Jesus was for them. Jesus was a Jew. He was speaking to them, and they had embraced him as Messiah. And they had embraced him as the one who fulfilled all this other stuff. So they don't, need to, they don't need to do the temple sacrifice thing anymore. And so some people in early Christianity said, well, Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. That's why we don't do sacrifice anymore. Does that mean we as a culture that don't do sacrifices should identify Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice? I don't think so. Because that doesn't make any sense to us. But what we're called to do is apply and understand and say, what is the freedom that Jesus offered these early communities in the confessional statement, Jesus is the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. What does that mean for me now? What does it provide me freedom from that, that, that brings me into a space of pain or hurt or, or disillusionment with God if Jesus is what we say, this full expression of God? That's the living experience. That's what we're asking right now. And so for those who have an experience with the risen Christ, the joy and the hope and the love of God, we're faced with that question today. Who is Jesus? And can I just tell you something right now? It's fun to explore whether or not Jesus actually said it, but my faith does not hinge on whether he said it or not. My, but my faith is actually enlivened by the complexity of the whole thing, and just giving freedom to let the text be the text. Every generation faces this question. Every generation is faced with taking the gospel, the freedom that's found in Jesus, that the original hearers heard, that the Jews of first century found freedom from oppressive religion, from exclusive religion. They found freedom. They said, we're going to embrace this, right? And then they adopted and adapted and told that story in a way that would make sense and bring freedom to their community. 
And so the historical study of the text of the New Testament and those outside the New Testament, it reveals that the earliest followers of Jesus, they were handed stories and sayings about Jesus. And they developed them. And they manipulated them, not in a way to deceive people, but in a way to free people. And sometimes they even created stories to help people understand. And don't get mad about that, because Jesus created stories all the time to help people understand. They picked up that bad habit from Jesus. (laughs) How dare you tell a parable about me, right? So when people want to reject Scripture because they say, well, people can't walk on water. I'm like, fine, people can't walk on water. What's the story mean? Fine, people can't can't calm the wind with their voices. Okay, I get that. We can't historically prove that. But what is it saying? It's saying that the risen Christ is in control of the seas and the storms. And you better get him in your boat. (laughs) And yeah, we could talk about it. And we don't have to have this faith that's grounded in dogma all the time. We can actually have vibrant faith that's living and in constant dialectical exchange with historicity. And when we find new documents, we can explore what they mean for us and for our faith. And I believe that that's part of the process of inspiration. I believe that's part of God breathing into history in a partnership. The God of of the New Testament and of the Hebrew Bibles is not a God of control, right? We see that. He's perfectly content. She is perfectly content. They are perfectly, whatever pronoun we want to use with God, perfectly intent to let us screw things up, (laughs) but partners with us always. That's the inspiration. So to say that those seeking to live a faithful life to the teachings of Jesus 70 or 80 or even 100 years after Jesus, that they shaped their memories and they potentially created some of these stories to tell their truth, it's not scary to me. It was at one point in time, but it's beautiful and it's consistent with a picture of God that's not in control of every little thing that we do, that doesn't want that, but it's a God that works with human limitations and with human imagination. One scholar I love, he wrote this. He says, I'll talk about original, developmental, and compositional layers or of retention, development, and creation within the text. He says, I'll talk about these three layers that we're pulling out and we're finding in this really beautiful, in these documents. Like what's original, what is a development, and what has been composed by the authors to bring about a greater truth. He says, but I reject absolutely any pejorative language for those latter processes. I don't think that if someone is adapting it or creating it, it makes it any less powerful or should be seen negatively. And then he says this, and I love it. And with this, we're going to end. He says, Jesus left behind him thinkers, not memorizers. Disciples, not reciters. People, not parrots. And see, the church has done the opposite. Oh my gosh, I shouldn't say that out loud. See, I think religion is probably a better way to do that. Religion, church, does the opposite. We create memorizers, not thinkers. Reciters, not disciples. Parrots, not people. And so my desire as a faith leader in the 21st century is to reform that, is to be in a space of community that says, wait a second, let's be thinkers, not memorizers. Let's be disciples, not reciters. Let's be people, not parents. So we're going to close out. I know there's all kinds of blanks left unfilled. Hang in there. I knew this was, I knew I was never going to get through all that nonsense, all right? But that's what we're going to do. We're going to get a good picture of the Jesus that walked around with dust in his sandals that had to go behind the bush to go to the bathroom like everybody else. 
who wasn't sure about his own identity, I believe that deeply. You cannot be fully human and know everything about your own personhood. I mean, the church says it's a complete heresy to say that he was fully God and not fully human. So there's this balance. This Jesus who found his identity, who went down one path with John the Baptist and said, uh, whoop, time out, whoa, problem, he just got killed. This doesn't seem to be the great path. I don't think that's it. And then it gets interpreted well that Jesus actually came and said, yeah, this path, I'm, now something new is happening. So we're going to look at that Jesus in a few key ways and see what that Jesus invites us into when it comes to our experience with the living Christ. Just a moment, we're going to receive the connect cards, the offering. As we do that, uh, Mickey has a great song that he's going to play for us. And as late as we are, I just don't want to get rid of this song because it's a beautiful song. I heard this song for the first time uh, probably two years ago. Just tears in my eyes. <laughs> Every time I hear it, I, I listened to it this morning as I was getting ready, knowing that you were going to get to hear this song some of you for the first time. Because this song, in just beautiful poetry and in beautiful art, conveys why this is so important and what happens when we don't explain Jesus well. And that doesn't mean that we don't have well meaning behind our lack of explanation. But there's a lot at stake here, and so I want to just encourage you to hang in there. Hang in there with me. Hang in there with our communicators who are going to be exploring these topics together. And we come from a space of humility that says, this is a great mystery. We don't have to abandon reason. We don't have to have it all together. We can give our best idea of the historical Jesus now, and then that can change with new findings and new thoughts. And we can experience this living Christ all the while through it. So take a listen to this song. Finish filling out that connect card, and I'll be back with our blessing here in just a moment to get you out for dinner tonight. All right.